Hello and welcome to Let's Talk University of Bradford, the podcast that looks at all things Bradford. My name's Chris and I'm your host. Today we're joined by Steve Tillotson who works in the research, innovation and engagement team here at the University of Bradford to take a look back at some of the top innovations and inventions that have come out of the research undertaken at Bradford over the years. Hi Steve. Hi Chris, thanks for having me. So Bradford was founded in 1966 as a university and since then, you know, there's been amazing work from so many fantastic academics that have resulted in some incredible outputs and have had some really wide-reaching and powerful impacts on a lot of people. So you came up with this booklet that outlines some of those things that have happened over the decades. What brought about this piece of work, Steve? Originally, it was a request from Susan Hinchcliffe, a councillor at Bradford Council, who wanted to demonstrate um, to to other people, in you know, other stakeholders, about um, the legacy of Bradford's research and kind of what what we actually do here, um, and so myself and you know colleagues in in research and innovation, um, you know, compiled these these stories about what we've done over the decades, and it's it kind of you know came together in these in these sort of t- ten key moments from um, from the last 50, 60 years. We go all the way back to the nineteen sixties, like I said, when we were founded. And, you know, right at the beginning there, we had a pretty big deal event happen where a group of academics who were quite unhappy with the state of academic publishing at the time, they actually banded together, uh, bought their first journal, I believe, for a pound, and then set up Emerald Publishing based off the back of that to basically, in their mind, fix the problems with academic publishing at the time. And that's now gone on to be a you know global, globally recognized journal publishing uh, company working with academic texts. And you know that's just that's just the first thing. You know, you go right back to the very very beginning, and then since then it's just been one thing after another. Like you say, this booklet that you've you've released um, focuses on, you know, roughly ten of these things. But there's so much more than that. This is just some of some examples that we're going to talk about talk about today. Yeah, I mean, you know, looking just looking at the first one in terms of Emerald Publishing. I mean, you you know, you said they thought they could do it better, and you know. They were right, you know. They're still going um, fifty odd years on, and you know they've got thirty million downloads from their publication website every year. So, you know, fair play to them. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you know, next sort of decade along, one of the biggest things for me, and it's something that I feel we should definitely mention, is you know we were the first university, the first established organization in the world to have a department of peace studies. And that was formed in the 70s. I think Adam Curl was appointed as the world's first chair for it, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it came about um, with a, a collaboration with the Quaker Peace Studies Trust. And they, they, they were looking, they were approaching universities to, to do this. And it, I think it was something that was kind of building in the university uh, organically anyway. Um, and they raised the money to create this new department in the university and it was interesting because they they raised the money via public appeal and contributors included Harold Wilson, the former prime minister, and he was chancellor of the university in its inception as well. Um, J.B. Priestley, who's got, you know, big, a lot of connections with the university. Um, the famous violinist Yehudi Menuhin and British composer Benjamin Britten. So a lot of big, big names sort of chipping in to, to do this because... You know, they obviously felt that with the political situation at the time, this this was something that was that was that was going to be valuable. And you know, that's that's been borne out. You know, we um, the the peace studies as it stands now produces a lot of 
you know, graduates that are experts uh, that that offer insight to um, a lot of global organizations, you know, the UN, World Bank, the EU, uh, the Africa Union, you know, all these things, um, you know, all these places are call upon our, our graduates to to offer their expertise. You've got those initial people who helped fund this. You know, that's a quite a, a broad spectrum of different backgrounds as well. You know, the people that you mentioned there and these others besides they're not all from, you know, one arm. They're not all politicians. They're not all this. They're not all that. You know, that's very different job roles, different industries, different interests. But they all banded together under this common goal of kind of seeing the value of peace building. Our graduates, you know, go into these areas and they bring together different disparate groups, foster cooperation, and just help bring about peace and bring about resolutions to conflicts and try and resolve problems hopefully before they get to any kind of violence but you know also if things are already quite bad they can go in there and provide some some oversight and some expertise to help bring an end to problems as well um and i think that's quite a powerful quite a powerful tool and quite i'm quite proud to you know work for an organization that has that in its repertoire of, of graduates and uh, we constantly are training the next uh, cohort of those people as well yeah absolutely and it's nice that it's peace studies you know it's not war studies like there is at other universities you know it's, it's kind of the the positive um you know side of the coin of that so that that brings us to another point in the 70s as well where something i mean i watched this television program as, as a child kind of growing up uh, some of the work that our academics undertook in the 60s and 70s and beyond actually um made an appearance in the popular archaeology tv program time team uh, which I thought was very interesting. You know, originally led by uh, Dr. Aspinall, they completely pioneered and changed sort of our outlook on measurement techniques within archaeology. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I know how this stuff works, but um, yeah, you know, you might be familiar with the, you know, the geophysical prospection, the geophys that they, that they uh, reference quite a lot in Time Team you know, being able to kind of read things underneath the ground. Um, and yeah, that was absolutely something that the University of Bradford academics were, you know, instrumental in, in sort of bringing, bringing into archaeology. And I think it's quite, quite telling as well when you look at modern uh, events in the university's archaeological department. We just won the Queen's Award um, for archaeology so yeah you know these big events and uh sort of inventions and innovations came about in the 60s and 70s but we're talking about them now to celebrate them but that kind of track record has continued ever since right up to the modern day we've got some absolutely fantastic academics doing very important research some brilliant students kind of going all over the place doing some again some great research and using some of these techniques some of our academics are developing new ones the archaeology department here at Bradford is a truly sort of innovative department all, of, all on its own and produces to this day some really incredible um, graduates, the research that it undertakes with the academics and then students doing things like PhDs and that kind of thing is impactful the world over within within that sphere. So again, it's one of those things that I think we can be quite quite proud of. And it's not just a one-off in the 60s and 70s. It has continued ever since. Yeah, like you say, you know, we, we won the Queen's Anniversary Prize in 2021. And that sort of demonstrated the the impact that our archaeology department has on the, you know, the wider sector. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not just sort of digging stuff up. You know, there's these, these digital projects that are kind of transforming the way that we look at, 
you know, the society and, and the history of our culture. So, yes, there's some really interesting stuff going on. And there's been some interesting collaborations between the archaeology department and other areas as well. I mean, we've talked on this podcast before to Karina and Ellie, who've done some really interesting work combining archaeology in the past with psychology and helping people with bereavement and things. So the tools there aren't just about, like it's not just about digging things up, but it's also not just about the past. It's also got implications in the now and in the future to help in a real impactful and meaningful way. Uh, more than just looking at what's happened before it informs what we do in the future. Yeah, absolutely. A big event in Bradford history that was a tragedy, but did lead to some incredible developments and collaborations and things that have helped countless people was the 1985 Bradford City Fire. Now, that was a horrible event in Bradford's history, but it did bring about a collaboration between the Centre of Skin Sciences here at Bradford and the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at Bradford Royal Infirmary Hospital, uh, they then joined together to create the now internationally renowned Bradford Burns Unit. So it was taking that tragic event and they've turned it into something that is really positive and helps a lot of people and has done ever since. You know, people with um, skin uh, issues, burn victims, things of that nature. Now, they've done a lot of big, big things over time that have really revolutionized certain areas of, of, of that area of medicine. And I know that one of them was the Bradford Sling, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, just to sort of put a bit of context in in what what they were dealing with at the time, you know, as, as well as the, the people who sadly died, they were dealing with um, more than 250 people in the hospital that were burnt by the fire. And they had to, you know, quickly find a way of of, of kind of treating these people and, and keeping them safe. And uh, it was led by um, Professor David Sharp, who was the consultant plastic surgeon at the time. And he came up with um, this Bradford sling that would support the arm or, or strap it to a patient's body, but keep the burn from being affected and keep the keep the arm safely immobilized. And that, that was a huge revolution in terms of not just burns, but arm injuries across the board. And that's, you know, that's, that's widely used now um, for, all, for all arm injuries. And a proportion of the revenues for that sling go to Bradford Hospital. So, you know, like they, they get back the benefits of that invention as well, which is, which is nice. Allowing the correct immobilization and support of an injured limb without creating further damage to the injured area has always been a challenge in medicine. And, you know, that's a really interesting development and innovation that, that was thought of at the time. And you know, that's quite a long time ago now, and it's still getting used to this day because it's such a powerful and future thinking and innovation um, by, those, by those doctors and that team. Another interesting development out of the Bradford Burns unit is the use of superglue in a rather interesting way. Uh, they've been using it to stabilize skin grafts, which previously were stapled into place. And it's now a widely adopted uh, method of doing this when, you, when you're working with skin grafts for, for burn patients. And I believe Loctite, the superglue manufacturing company, even sponsored a PhD at Bradford in the 80s to sort of investigate that a little bit further and prove the uh, impact of it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, if you, I mean, I've seen that used on telly a couple of times recently. You know, Jennifer Lopez did it in, in the film The Mother squirted a bit of uh, glue in, in a bullet hole and we can look at that and say, you know, that's that's from Bradford, the, <laughs> that um, DIY um, medical treatment. 
when you see it on 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 the on the big screen, so to speak, you sometimes think, "Oh, that can't be a real thing." But, yeah. Because you, know, you know, most people have got super glue in the home. You're using it for sticking together your kids' toys or something that's broken. Maybe you glue a handle back onto something. To think that that then gets used in the medical field and that's a real thing that actually happens is quite interesting and it has these quite important implications. Yeah, but I think this is the point where we say, don't put super glue in you. Yeah, in uh, let's, let's caveat with that, absolutely. <laughs> let's caveat with that, you know, don't do that unless you have no other choice. You know, speak speak to a medical professional if you injure yourself, absolutely. <laughs> um, well thought of there, Steve. <laughs> so keeping within the medical um, aspect of things then, We've also got a lot of work going on at Bradford, both historically and now, pioneering tools um, in dementia care and care for dementia patients and persons with dementia. Could you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what's come before and where we're at with that at the moment? The where we are in the in the sort of timeline is in the nineties now, and the there's the thing called the Bradford Dementia Care Mapping Tool, which was uh, which came about in around nineteen ninety five based at the Centre of Applied Dementia Studies. And this was looking at um, person-centred care in terms of treating people with dementia. So looking at it from the point of view of the person with dementia and sort of building a toolkit around that for carers and for practitioners that are looking after people with dementia. Um, And that's kind of almost a product of the university that we, you know, we train carers now using this toolkit and it's been constantly updated since then you know it's a kind of legacy thing that we um is still still going strong Ten thousand people have gone through this system to be to be trained in this way so you know it's a, it's a huge tool in in terms of making sure that people with dementia are well cared for and and you know their needs are met and you got ten thousand care practitioners that have been trained in this way you think how many hundreds and potentially thousands of patients each one of those care practitioners can go on to help in their time in the in the healthcare field. You know that's a lot of people receiving, you know, potentially life altering care because of the innovation that's come out of the University of Bradford. Um, and you know that like I say that's ongoing as well. That's not something that's happened historically and that that's that's done with now. It's something that is constantly updated and it's constantly refined for as we find out more information about dementia so that's providing a valuable tool for some of our most vulnerable people in society yeah absolutely and the center for applied dementia studies are constantly um, you know looking at new innovations and you know bringing out new research that helps address uh, the the issues that people with dementia face for example recently the south asian dementia diagnosis pathway or the ADAPT um, toolkit was launched. And that's looking at how we treat people from South Asian backgrounds with dementia that might be that might have cultural or language barriers, you know, how, how we deal with that. And, you know, this toolkit was put in place to help address some of the issues that they might face. So I believe the dementia department actually identified that people in of those backgrounds weren't getting the care that they need they potentially need they were showing up lower in the figures despite still having the same prevalence of dementia. And this is a way to address that and try and make sure that those people get the same care that everybody else can get and, and get over the hurdles which might be in the way of that. And another thing that's kind of came out of the Centre for Applied Dementia Studies recently is um, a stage play, which is kind of an unusual thing when you're considering research. But um, it was basically a play that was based on 
verbatim accounts from um, practitioners who were dealing with people with dementia during lockdown. So this this play is quite a quite a powerful thing that kind of you know really hits home what what people had to go through during lockdown and dealing with people with dementia. It's interesting to sort of see the ways in which as people we can um, absorb information and how we can share information and taking something which can be quite a difficult subject to talk about and also sometimes a difficult subject to properly articulate. You know, when you're talking about the struggles of both dementia patients and the people who look after those dementia patients, it's not an easy job. It can be quite a difficult job. And like you say, during the pandemic, it's got to have been even harder because you've got issues around um, contact and that kind of thing. To be able to take that and put it into something that's a bit easier to absorb, you know, a play, a TV program, those kinds of things, media which we can we can watch, makes it a little bit easier for us to absorb quite difficult subjects because it puts us into the moment a little bit more. So it's a, it's a powerful tool and it's interesting to see it being used in such an innovative way. So that takes us through the, through the 90s. We've touched on to some more modern stuff there as well, of course. Now that brings us into the new millennium, into the 2000s and some of the innovations that... Um, our academics have come up with in that time. Right at the turn of the millennium, there was a massive um, deal that went on where the university pharmacy department um, sold a particular technology for $200 million to a, to a, a large um, pharmaceutical company in America. And this, this, was, um, this was named Bradford Particle Design. And it was a particular particular technology to use uh, to get crystallization using carbon dioxide. And again, I'm a layman. I, I can't I can't talk you through the ins and outs of it. But basically, it's it's a much more stable um, crystallization technique uh, using carbon dioxide that 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 was a, a huge improvement on techniques used used previously. And it's used in stuff like um, decaffeinating coffee. So you know that's probably it the most uh, domestic use that, that people can relate to. <laughs> I mean, it's things like that that really highlight some of the work that goes on here. It's sometimes problems you don't even necessarily know exist. You know, as, as I say, as a layman, did we really know that decaffeinating coffee was difficult? Did we really know that crystallization for use in medical treatments is difficult or was a problem? Probably not for the most part, but then teams come along, academics come along and research these things. And they, in this case, it was a spin-out venture um, that kind of developed this new technique that was then gone, that went on to be sold. And that's got wide-reaching impacts in pharmaceuticals, in domestic use as well. And it's a problem you don't even necessarily know exists. But then once you look at what they've done to make it easier, you know, it's, it's sta- more stable, it's non-toxic, it's... Um, you know, less expensive, it's non-flammable. Apparently the old methods were quite dangerous and flammable. And you kind of look at it and go, well, that's simplified a lot of things. It's simplified manufacturing. How many other knock-on effects does that have for environmental impacts where they don't need to use dangerous chemicals that then don't need to be produced as a result and things like that? It's problems that can be tackled. And whilst you look at the one problem and go, oh, that's that's an interesting solution, it has a lot of knock-on effects that can tend to allow into a lot of other areas and, and really have bigger impacts and bigger benefits across the board. So that's quite an interesting example for that. And, uh, you know, the, the sort of the techniques used are still utilised today by Christek Pharma, which is another university spin-out company that we've got, obviously got a good relationship with. And they use that that to um, to work with pharmaceutical and health care industries 
it's, it's good to know that things that were developed, you know, 20 years ago, whilst they are looking to constantly improve things and, and, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of this is about the betterment of our society, betterment of mankind to put a sort of big, bigger reach on it. And, you know, that's what we're aiming for with a lot of our research is about doing things positive for the, for the, for the world. It's good to see that things that were developed are still in use. You know, still things have longevity. Uh, the research is relevant, you know, even even till today and still has an impact which is helping people all these years later. And that's the same for a lot of the research that goes on here and the outputs of it is whilst we are looking to make things better, the things that have come before still have legs. And I think that's quite a, quite an important point to, to sort of make there. It's not just a throwaway thing that's relevant for a few years. It has a, a long-standing history of being useful. Speaking of helping people, uh, we're going to come back around a little bit, I think, to healthcare elements of things and talk about a little bit at the Institute of Cancer Therapeutics. That's an on-campus um, part of the University of Bradford that, as the name suggests, researches and looks into cancer therapeutics and cancer treatments and sort of making those better. And there's been a lot of big developments um, in particular, you know, if you go back to sort of 20, 2010, uh, some, sometime in that, that decade, um, I'm not sure exactly on the exact year. They developed a new way of targeting tumours, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, they found that um, a kind of an element of the crocus flower was really useful in, in targeting cancer. And that kind of led to this thing that they called the crocus smart bomb. This this thing was called col- colchicine, this element from, from uh, crocus. And, and that kind of, that breakthrough led to the crocus cancer appeal um, to kind of develop this further and and really look into its effectiveness and kind of, you know, push it forward in terms of turning it into a, a cancer treatment. So what happened from that initial breakthrough was the university alongside the Telegraph and Argus, Yorkshire Cancer Research and Sovereign Healthcare Community Fund put together this um, this appeal to raise a million pounds to buy some new technology that would help push this, um, you know, push this innovation forward. So that was launched in May 2013 and, and lasted for for a year or so. But it was hugely successful, you know. Um, and it's nice to to think that it was a kind of it was not just the university, but the sort of community at large. You know, obviously Bradford TNA has is kind of got a big reach as well in terms of community stuff. And a lot of people got on board and, you know, they raised, they raised the million pounds. And it was this this piece of technology, the Orbitrap mass spectrometer was was able to be purchased. And that, you know, again, that's something that is in the ICT now, the Institute of Cancer Therapeutics. And re- this research into into cancer therapeutics is, is you know, is made more possible from from technology like that. And it's you know, that was that was bought specifically to help develop and push forward this particular Crocus smart bomb technology and innovation, which you know that effectively to give a bit of context for that, it allows the targeting of cancerous tumours, um, whilst minimising the damage to the rest of the body. So you know traditional chemotherapies can be quite harmful to the overall overall health of the person. This helps minimise that a little bit, um, and that is research that's still ongoing, like you say. But that that piece of technology that they purchased to do this one particular um, bit of research that does get used for other things as well and that's the benefit of this kind of thing the entire community the local community came together to allow the purchase of this which is a great bringing together of people but it's done more than just that one thing so that one brilliant example of community engagement has actually led to a lot of innovations down the line since as well 
So the University of Bradford really has brought a lot of good to the world with its innovations and groundbreaking research over the years and continues to do so. You know, all of this is made possible by a cohort of fantastic minds. And uh, whilst we have been discussing a lot of past achievements today, uh, very much worthy of celebration, it really doesn't end there. Bradford academics are even now working on new and amazing projects that aim to change the world. In fact, we've actually spoken to quite a few of them on this on this show before. So thank you very much, Steve, for joining us today to provide some insight into just a handful of these amazing research innovations over the years. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. And of course, thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, and other social media by searching for the University of Bradford. And as always, take care, everyone.